Peter is giving us here is that there is a temple being built here on earth, a temple of faith. Holy fire, burn away my desire for anything that is not hard. Thanks for joining us at The Hope of Our Calling. Let's get started in our study of First Peter. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Hope of Our Calling. Uh, I am Kendra, and we are in the uh, epistle of First Peter. We are in chapter 2. We started in chapter 2 last week, and we're continuing this week with living stones and the cornerstone. Last week, uh, we were reminded that we need to be mindful of God's faithfulness. All those things. We need to build memorials, if need be, to remind us that God is faithful. We also were exhorted that we need to be careful. We need to be careful of those lusts of our flesh, the pride of life, the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes. We need to be very careful because, as Paul told us, We will always be in a battle as long as we are here on earth. Our enemy, the enemy of our soul, will not give up. He will pursue us until the day that we see Christ face to face. However, that doesn't mean that we're lost in this battle. No, because the battle belongs to the Lord, right? He is faithful, and that's what we focused on last week. And as we build those memorials and as we remember that we are in a battle, we were also encouraged to continue to be faithful in God's word because that is where we are guided into his light, that is where he exists in his holiness, and that is also where we are led into all truth by the power of his spirit. So this week we're going to start and pick up at verse 4. And it says, To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Now, I like to look at other versions of Scripture so that I can get a fuller understanding of what is being said or what is being written to us by the Apostle Peter. So, I'm going to be sharing from the complete Jewish Bible version. So, uh, verse 4 says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by people, but chosen by God and precious to him. We're coming to the living stone. And who is the living stone? That living stone is Christ Jesus himself. He was rejected by men. But he was chosen by God before time began. Remember, we've mentioned it from Revelation, the lamb that was crucified before the foundation of the world. So God chose Jesus for this precious mission of redeeming and saving all of mankind. And he was steadfast in that work. On the cross, after he was brutally beaten and brutally crucified, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was steadfast. 
Now, when we look at the word living stone, that's what we're seeing. A stone is steadfast. If you go to Israel, you can see the Temple Mount, and you can see some of those stones of the Temple Mount. You can even see the cornerstone of the Temple Mount. That cornerstone weighs 80 tons. There's another stone in the foundation of the Temple Mount that weighs 600 tons. Stones are steadfast, and the one we worship is a living, steadfast ruler of all things, Jesus himself. He was chosen, and he was precious. Verse 5, you also, as lively stones, are built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Or, in the complete Jewish Bible, you yourselves, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be kohanim, set apart for God, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Him through Yeshua the Mashiach. It makes me think of when we studied in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 that say, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God, and are built upon a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let that just sink in for a moment. I just want to make a side note for just a moment. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, it says, I saw no temple therein. Speaking of heaven, John the Apostle was telling us about the vision he had of heaven. And he says, I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Now, I've always mentioned that as we study scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we are, we're extraordinarily blessed because we're getting to see the full canvas, the full picture, the full tapestry. Or, as I said a couple of weeks ago, we get the cover of the jigsaw puzzle. And that's what I'm seeing here. As I've been blessed to be taught from Genesis to Revelation and studying it, I see something marvelous. God tells us that we're the temple of his Holy Spirit. It's that, that we have the deposit of God's Spirit that guides us into all truth. And then I wonder when he makes these references to being a temple fitly put, it to, put together. This is where the full counsel of God comes in. Because you get to put all the pieces together to come up with a better understanding of what's being said. So when I meditate on this portion of scripture where it talks about us being living stones and being builded and fitted and framed together, 
I, I have to think of the scripture in Revelation that says there is no temple. So, Lord, what does this mean? And I believe that they're talking about a temple of faith. And the temple of faith is built on the foundation of Christ Jesus and his steadfastness, according not only to the truth of God, but to his mission here on earth to share the good news of redemption from our sin and that he came to pay for it so we would not have to. I believe this analogy of building of, uh, of building fitly together is in reference to here on earth. Because think about it. If each one of us is a living stone, each one of us as followers of Christ are all living stones being fitted together. When we come together, scripture says we're two or more gathered I am in their midst. So if each of us has a deposit of his spirit, when we come to fellowship with one another, as the Lord says, do not forsake the gathering of the brethren. When we come together, there is tremendous power. When we pray together, there is tremendous power power. And I believe the analogies that Paul gave us in Ephesians and Peter is giving us here is that there is a temple being built here on earth, a temple of faith. And that when we come together in unity, God's righteousness abides here on earth. That is why they will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another is so relevant. It is so important. We need to forsake the lusts of our flesh that cry out when we've been offended. Remember, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Jesus was the lamb led to the slaughter who opened not his mouth. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us be the one that, though persecuted, does not take offense Because they're not persecuting us. They're persecuting Christ in us. The Bible verifies this, and it is true, that those who are caught up in the world, who have rejected Christ, see his righteousness within us and only wish that they too could come. God is exhorting us to be in unity. God is exhorting us to be mature and to grow in the things of God, that we might be a mighty force here on earth, drawing people out of the darkness. He calls us a holy priesthood. And in the complete Jewish Bible, they call that the Kohanim. The Kohanim were the descendants of Aaron, the high priests. Think about that for a second. We are being called a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, because we are representing Christ, who is the high priest. We speak for him here on earth when we speak his word. And the priesthood was called to be set apart. Remember I said from the complete Jewish Bible, it says that you yourself as living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be kohanim, set apart for God. Being set apart is the same as 
being sanctified because that's what sanctified means. It means to be set apart. And I was reading Wisdom for Today from Pastor Chuck Smith, and I came across something about sanctification I want to share. It says, the word sanctify means to be set apart. In the temple, vessels were set apart to be used exclusively in the worship of God. They were to be used for no other purpose. And that is what sanctification means for us. That we might be set apart from the world and freed from the world's influences. That we might be committed and dedicated unto him. And I love this part. That we might be God's own property. My question is, if you think about it, isn't that truth? When we die to ourselves, no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. Aren't we basically presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice? We're giving ourselves wholeheartedly over to the Lord, seeking his will and his way, trusting him in all things, rejoicing always because he is faithful and has promised to never leave or forsake us, to lead and to guide us. We'll hear a a voice in our ear saying, this is the way, walk in it. So many promises within his word, testifying to his faithfulness to lead and guide us. We are his property. Now it goes on to speak about being set apart to make spiritual sacrifices. With the death of Jesus Christ, all debt for all time was paid for. As demonstrated by that torn veil in the Holy of Holies when he rendered up his spirit at Calvary. There is now no more payment for sin required. Do you remember when Moses, the people were complaining because there was no water, and the Lord told Moses to go and strike the rock once, and water would come from it. And Moses let the lust of his flesh erupt, that anger, that frustration from a complaining and murmuring population around him. And what did he do? He struck that rock Not once as God had told him to do. He struck it twice. And God says, no, Moses, you are wrong. You may now not enter into the promised land for your disobedience. God is a righteous God. And throughout time, from Adam and Eve until the time he is finished with the things here on earth, He has a plan in place. And when you study God's word, one of the coolest things is when you see his truth played out in the lives of mankind who think they have free will. It's it's an amazing epiphany. When you can recognize how God uses normal, everyday man to teach his truths. Like when he said, Abraham, take thy son, thy only son, and go to the mount that I will show you to sacrifice him. And it took three days of traveling. To Abraham, Isaac was dead to him for three days. And then the Lord at the last second saved Abraham's son. It's a foreshadowing, a picture of Christ. He was in the grave for three days. 
these kind of things run through scripture. And when you study scripture, then all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, what's he doing through my life that I'm not aware of? When we walk in obedience, there is a testimony, a fragrance of him that goes behind us that God uses. Oh, to be used by our magnificent God. It's extraordinary. Anyway, speaking of that, (laughs) he tore the veil. The earthquake hit. The earth grew dark. He tore the veil of the Holy of Holies that I think it was 13 or 15 inches thick. And it was rent from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies where no man went except once a year, where God's presence resided on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It was rent into for our benefit because that price had been paid. There was no more need for sacrifices. No more sacrificial system was needed at the Temple Mount because Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. I mentioned Romans 12, chapter 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This is the first of our spiritual sacrifices to offer ourselves to the Lord. The second one is our praise sacrifice. So often we don't feel like praising the Lord. Yet in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, it says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. When we offer a praise sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise, it's only really a sacrifice when we don't feel up to doing it. But God calls us to obedience because when we come to the Lord in praise, our attitude shifts because we start looking up and we stop looking down. When we are obedient to offer sacrifices of praise, guess what else we do? James 4, 7 says that if you resist the devil, he will flee. What do you think happens when we praise? When we don't buy the doubt he's sowing, Did God really say he'd never leave you? Did God really say he'd take care of you? Yes, he did. And I praise him for it. I thank him for it. I adore him for his faithfulness. Satan can't handle that. He doesn't want to hear that. He wants us to grovel and adore him, just like he did at the beginning. But we worship the one true and living God. And guess what? It pleases the Father. It pleases the Father when we demonstrate our faith through sacrifices of praise. They're more precious than gold. The third spiritual sacrifice is works sacrifice. Again, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, it says, But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Jesus came to share his eternal life with us. How could we refuse to share? The fourth one is brokenness. 
Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. And John chapter 4.24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Our brokenness brings us to a place of honesty. It brings us to a place of needing and thirsting for his righteousness. This is where we meet the Lord. When we're willing to die to self, that we might see him. When we trust his spirit, and his spirit leads and guides us via all the promises that are made available to us through Jesus. Later on, when we get to 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to study about those great and precious promises that make us partakers of his divine nature because we're walking in those promises. We're believing and trusting in them. And when we know his word and we're walking in his word, we're walking in his truth and his light and his love. And we have faith and we have hope and we have joy. Verse 6, this is why the Tanakh says, Look, I am laying in Zion a stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and whoever rests his trust on it will certainly not be humiliated. That's a promise right there, that when we trust the Lord, he is faithful. This scripture, this verse opens up with that it's contained in scripture, Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. This is written 700 years before the death of Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, we see testimonies of Christ. The biggest difference between God's Word and any other religious book out there is prophecy. We have the more sure word of prophecy. God wants us to know and be a part of the plan He has for us. We've learned so much just by studying God's word. We've learned that we're chosen. We've learned that we're redeemed. We've learned that we're forgiven. We've learned that we're the bride of Christ and that we have a future and a hope. And we've learned so much more. But did you know there's over 300 prophecies of the coming of Christ? Think about Isaiah 53 and the suffering of Christ on the cross. The Sanhedrin were those that were in charge of rightly teaching God's message. They rejected Jesus Christ because he didn't fit their mold of the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah who would be king. They could not comprehend that the problem with a righteous king and an unrighteous people had to be dealt with once and for all, and that the sacrificial lamb that was sacrificed every single year needed to be finished. 
Jesus was the Passover lamb. And he said it on the cross to tell us die. But because Jesus didn't fit their mold, he wasn't the Messiah they were looking for to, to deliver them. They couldn't metabolize Isaiah 53 that talks about this suffering servant. So they just shove it aside and they blindly missed the Messiah. In Romans chapter 11, it talks about how the Jewish people have a veil over their eyes. Do you remember when I talked about the veil being rent in two? When they rejected Jesus as Messiah, they put the veil back over their eyes. Jesus made it possible for us to come boldly before the throne of grace, to talk to Father God. When you get down to the root meaning of that, it means Daddy God. It's an intimate Abba. They couldn't handle that, and the veil came back over their eyes. Verse 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Or, read in the complete Jewish Bible, the stone, the very stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Psalm 118, 22 and 23, it says, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing. Again, God has had a plan since before the foundation of the world. And when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, perhaps he was saying, Father, we knew this was going to happen. Please forgive them. Anyway, when we were uh, in Israel, we went up to um, a city named Sfat. It was the city on the hill. And at the top of the hill, we found a Roman road. And we followed that Roman road down the hill. And it went into a small town called Rosh Penah. And what's interesting is that on their streets, they have a sign from Psalm 118.22 about the stone which the builders refused has become the head of the corner. And they're not making reference to Christ because it's not a town of believers. Still, to this day, they cannot see the truth of God's word. The cornerstone or the head of the corner. It's usually the biggest and the most time-consuming stone to create for a building. It sets up the true lines of a building to make the foundation sure. It's the first foundational stone. If it's off in any way, it could cause the building, once built, to collapse outward or inward. It must be true. And God is saying, Jesus is the head corner stone. Like we've mentioned in Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundational stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. 
I like reading from the Life Application Study Bible, and I'd like to share with you what it said about these verses. It says, No doubt Peter often thought of Jesus' words to him right after he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. That's from Matthew 16, 16 and 18. I love that. The powers of hell will not conquer it. What is the stone that really counts in the building of a church? Peter answered it. Jesus, he is called the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. And some will stumble over Christ because they've rejected him or refused him refused to believe that he was who he said he was. But as we read in Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And it's the most important part of God's building. Remember, it's God's property. We are God's building, his temple here on earth. The church is God's temple here on earth. Not made with hands, but by being born again in his spirit. What are the characteristics of Christ, the cornerstone? Number one, he is completely trustworthy. Number two, he is precious to believers. And three, though rejected by some, he is the most important part of the church. People who refuse to believe in Christ have made the greatest mistake of their lives. They have stumbled over the one person who could save them and give meaning to their lives. And they have fallen into God's hand of judgment. Pray for those who cannot recognize Christ as Savior. For more information about Kendra Martin and Hope of Our Calling, you can email her at kendramartinministries at gmail.com or visit the website at www.hopeofourcalling.org.